Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, we're meant to view the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life. Times get tougher even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line, from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Uh, today's Friday, and that is a great thing because that means today we are going to have your calls to 866-65-THINK. Again, that's 866 866- 65-T-H-I-N-K. Call that number, and within about two to three weeks, it's highly probable that you'll hear yourself on the air. This is another thing I might have to double up on to work on some backlogs, and I love these shows because they're all about you, and they're all about the subjects you're interested in. If you happen to listen today and go, those aren't the subjects I want to hear, then you know what you need to do. You need to pick up your phone. You need to mash those numbers. 866-65-T-H-I-N-K. You get about three minutes to leave your message. Try to do it in two unless you're giving me a lot of detail and being spot on with it so that the call doesn't ramble on too long for folks. And I will try to get you an answer, respond to your commentary, your observation, what have you. Again, I love these shows because it's all about you. Before I get to your calls, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors and some housekeeping Uh, I want to remind you guys right up front, though, one of our sponsors, Shelf Reliance, is giving away a Harvest 72 food rotation system that's valued at over $400. All you got to do is like them on Facebook, make a blog post. That's about it. And uh, full details, you can find a link in today's show notes for that. I put out a blog post earlier this week about that. But I have made a real commitment to try to bring, bring big prizes to you in the number of about two uh, big sponsored contests a month. Uh, next month, we'll be giving away a Rock River Upper, AR-15 Upper, valued at over $800 from Ready Rain Resources. That's pretty cool. Um, so I just wanted you know, to kind of bring that up right out front and remind you guys, don't skip the housekeeping because that's where you find out about stuff like this. Uh, next up, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress, Self De- Fortress Defense Consultants. Uh, that's Frank Sharp Jr.'s company, Fortress Defense Consultants, and... I'll tell you what, this is how I look at it. There's there's three things when it comes to firearm self-defense. One, you got to have a firearm, a reliable, dependable firearm. And if you don't have that, well, you don't have firearms-based self-defense. Two, you got to have ammunition. Now, the thing about the firearm and the ammunition is they're deceptive because they're so easy to acquire. You go out and buy that, and then you have it. And then you think, I'm good to go. Well, the third thing you need is training and how to use it. And I don't care how long you've been shooting. I don't care if your great uncle or your uncle who was a special forces guy taught you how to shoot. I don't care what you think you know about firearms. If you haven't taken professional firearms training, you're not as good as you could be. And if you ever need to actually depend on that, you want to be as good as you can be. A lot of times people ask me, what should I get for my next firearm? And if you have a few... You haven't taken firearms training, I say, put the money into the training and leave the next gun for later. There's an old saying about the rifleman that hunts for big game, beware the man that carries one gun. And that's really because he knows what he's doing with it. And that makes the weapon 
you know, it's, that's what makes the weapon is the operator, not the ammo, not the action, not that it was on the latest uh, edition of Shooting Times or Gun Magazine, but the operator makes the weapon. Uh, so check out Fortress Defense Consultants. They'll make you a better operator of any weapon you want to run. Next up today, the Berkey Guy at Directive21.com. What do you get from the Berkey Guy? Give you three guesses, but you only need one. You get Berkey water filtration systems and other great preparedness and modern survival items. Why do I focus on the Berkey part of the Berkey guy, though? Well, that's because of what he named himself, and it's also because it is the absolute biggest need we have in survival is free, uh, clean, fresh water. And if we don't have that every day, it doesn't take us but a day or two, and we end up dead. I mean, that's what it comes down to. We've got to have water. And I'll tell you what, the most cost-effective way I know to make your water safe to drink is with the Berkey Water Filtration System. Uh, it's a great-looking system. It looks good in the home. Now that I have a 695-foot deep well with some of the cleanest, purest water on the planet available to me, I actually keep my Berkey system at our office because I'm on a tap water system here at the office, and I also don't like drinking chlorine and fluoride in my water. Since I use the water here... I keep the filter system here, but if I ever need it for an emergency situation, I'll be able to take it home with me. I recommend you make it part of your modern survival plan as well. Next up, make sure you connect with us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, etc. I also want to remind you guys, I will be at the, shelf, uh, the Self-Reliance Expo in Denver, Colorado in September. I'll put a link in today's show notes. Uh, make sure if you get a chance to come to that thing you do, I'd love to meet you. I'm going to be sitting right next to, uh, in a, in a kind of a booth situation with Dave Canterbury. We're going to be hanging out there throughout the day to take your questions, talk to you and stuff like that. I'm literally looking forward to seeing Dave again. And I'm looking to see now if I can make the one in Salt Lake that's a month later. Uh, that might be a little bit tougher, but I'll definitely be at the one in Denver. So make sure you come meet with me there. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You support the show at 20 cents an episode. Remember, law enforcement and military, prior service or active duty in either, I have a special discount code for you. Email me before you join, and I'll send you the code. Just tell me you know, who you are, what your job was, where you served, and what capacity. I don't need to see anybody's uh, ID cards or badge or anything like that. Uh, put this on the honor system, and, and basically, when you tell me what you've done and where you're doing it or where you did it, I'll know. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take your first call. There's some great ones today. I'm working on calls that are about three weeks old. If your call's older than that, uh, you may have got pushed deep into the backlog. You may want to recall in if it's more than three weeks since you called and you haven't heard yourself on the air yet. Everybody else, I will try to get to you, and I'll try to do uh, maybe a second version of this show two or three times in the next couple months and try to bring us up to where maybe we can be answering calls at two weeks out. With that, let's go ahead and take that first call. Hey, Jack, this is John from Northwest Arkansas. I have a series of questions for you on cars today. As a mechanic, I wanted to hear your opinion on fixing up or rebuilding old vehicles. It seems like having a project car would be a good way to learn useful skills while making a better long-term investment than buying new, but I have a few concerns. As a complete beginner, is this kind of project appropriate for learning basic mechanic and shop skills, or would I be in over my head? From your experience, is it actually a frugal decision, or does the cost of building up a shop from scratch, the cost of making beginner mistakes, etc., turn out making it about the same. Thank you for the advice and keep up the great work on the show. Well, I think it's definitely something that you might want to look at doing, especially if you have the interest in it. And definitely looking at older vehicles are generally easier to work on than newer vehicles. And there's a whole lot more of them laying in junkyards, which can be a good source of parts. Let me give you a few different thoughts on this. 
Um, number one, I'm going to tell you flat out, I don't have any older vehicles. My older vehicles are 2003 models. Um, do have two diesels, and I'm very happy with the decision to do that. Uh, I don't sit around worrying about EMPs all the time. Um, I do keep a good, you know, quantity of spare parts around. And when I have a pro, uh, a, a part on my vehicle that's not worn out, but is kind of due for replacement, what I will do is I will, you know, either do the work myself, or if I don't have time, even if I pay somebody to do it, I will take the part that's not exactly broken and I will keep it. And that way I have a brand new part in the vehicle, but I have a good backup spare without it really costing me any money that wouldn't have already cost. So that's the approach I'm taking today. I am kicking around the idea, and I need, I'm glad you called because it reminded me I need to get Old Grouch from Old Grouch Military Surplus on the air to talk about doing just this. I'm th thinking about getting an old military cut V, and um, that's a, a GM truck, basically, a Chevy truck, and it uses a... Uh, An awful lot of common parts with civilian versions. There's some specifics to the military version, but an awful lot of the stuff there is very, very common stuff available in junkyards. And he's actually running one of those with a mixture of used motor oil and diesel fuel and cutting his fuel costs in half. And I think that's cool, and that might be one route you want to consider going. No matter what, and you, you kind of called back and left another message that I'm not going to play, but cutting to the chase, it was, do you have any you know, makes and models I recommend? Not really, because there's a lot of good old vehicles out there. There's a lot of old crap vehicles out there. But here's, here's what it comes down to. What do you want? And how much do you want to spend? Because there's some good old vehicles out there. There's not a lot left of them, and they're considered starting to kind of get classic now. And even one that's beat to hell costs quite a bit of money. And then there's some old ones out there that are really nothing wrong with them, but nobody really likes them that much. And there's plenty of them in junkyards, so you can get them for less and get parts from them for less. And so it comes down to what you want. This is what I will advise you to do, though. If you're considering buying a vehicle, Um, look at the engine and the transmission that are in that vehicle, specifically. Your differential, you know, your rear axles, differentials, things like that, and all are important too. But really look at the transmission and the engine. And then call some local junkyards, even if you're not going to replace them, and say, I need a transmission for, I need an engine for. And I mean, don't just the model, the engine, you know, is it 3.1? Is it, is it a 350? What it, What is that engine specific model? Even if you're just looking for cores in the junkyard, transmission, engine, very, very important. Here's where I'm going with that. If you call around and you find out that there's almost none of them available, you have to call like three states over to find one engine core or one transmission core for that model, it means, and I mean flat out, it means only one thing. And that is that the engine, or if you had the same condition with the transmission, is a piece of shit. And the reason it means that is because what it means is that they blow and go out all the time and need to be rebuilt and people are getting cores from junkyards. And that's the easiest way I know because you might find a particular vehicle and the vehicle might have a good reputation, but it might come with two motors. And if you have then maybe developed an attachment to that motor and you start calling around to find out that motor is not available anywhere, you just can't find any of them anywhere in a junkyard, um, and don't check one because it could be that just none of them were wrecked and sent off there, but you can't find them anywhere, um, maybe check the other motor. And if you start to find that there's lots of those laying around in junkyards, that means people aren't gobbling them up real quick. So if you're looking for you know a model A13 car, we'll just make something up out of thin air, and there's plenty of them in junkyards, 
right? But none of the motors are there. They're all gone. That means that that motor's in high demand because it blows up all the time. Now, if that model of car's just not sitting in a junkyard anywhere, well, they don't break down a lot and they don't get junked a lot. That's a different scenario, though. But if the cars are there and the engine core or tranny core is gone, that's a big indicator. You're looking at the wrong damn thing to buy for reliability. Um, as far as saving money, you, if you're going to put in a full shop, and I'm not sure what you mean by that, but in general, no, you're not going to save a lot of money. Tools are expensive, and it, it's a matter of what you're going to do. Is, are you talking about kind of like putting in a shop where you can, you know, bore out your own engine blocks and, and, and things like that and do complete motor rebuilds on your own? Unless you're going to be doing it for other people and making some money off it, there's no profit to be had there. Now, if you're talking about just having like uh, a cherry picker where you can actually lift out motors and things like that, but you're going to send away heads to be rebuilt or whatever and do all that yourself and use a machine shop for that, which is what I would do. I wouldn't try to learn all of this stuff. It's way too long of a learning curve and way too expensive. Then you can probably do okay with it. The key is that a lot of the stuff that you would have in a shop like that has other purposes. Uh, a lot of the tools are multi-purpose. A wrench has many purposes other than turning a wrench on a vehicle. So it's kind of six and one and half a dozen of the other out there. An old car that you work on, though, is a rolling hole into which you put money. And that, that's that's a fundamental reality. It's older. It's been around longer. Every If it's got 100,000 miles on it, every piece has 100,000 miles on it. If it's got 400,000 miles on it, every piece has 400,000 miles on it. There's, you know, you can go to the junkyards and mine parts and stuff like that, and uh, you can do okay, but it's a constant thing. Unless you rebuild it like a brand new vehicle where you replace almost everything except the frame and the body, um, and, and that is going to get expensive too. I don't think that we're in such danger of having um, an EMP or coronal mass ejection that everybody should go and rebuild the 1968 Bronco. I really don't. I don't think that makes a lot of sense. I think there's some damn good you know, vehicles on the road today. But those vehicles from the 60s and a lesser extent the 70s and even up into the 80s are generally easier to work on. A lot of times this is another option. You can get a vehicle that will basically accept, let's say, a basic stock 350 without all the fancy crap on it. And even if that vehicle came with carbur, you know, uh, arresters and all kinds of fancy exhaust and stuff, if it's old enough in a lot of states, it doesn't have to go through the admissions testing. It's an antique after a certain age. So some of those, you can yank all that crap out of there, go throw an old 354 bolt main in there, and then all the parts that are available for that very common motor will work with that car to a degree. you got to look at a lot of things, though, before you make a decision. For instance, here's I, I can't go too far with this, and I'm already running off on it, but let me give you a for instance of where you think things are going to work and they're not. Uh, you find a vehicle and you know it needs a transmission. It's an old 1970 Pontiac Grand Prix, 1973, 1974, something like that. Big old point out. You think it's cool. You find one somewhere that's in decent shape and you buy it. And uh, you know you need a, uh, let's say it's got a 400 small block in it. Uh, and you know you need a, what's called a TH400 transmission for that particular car. If it had a 350 in it, you would need a TH350. It doesn't always work that way, but in that model, in that year range, it did. So you call up a junkyard and you say you're looking for a TH350 transmission core and you want to know how much they are. And they say, we have tons of them and they're 80 bucks. You think, well, there's my core if I need one. Well, does it come from a Chevy or a Pontiac? 
The Chevy top of the transmission bell housing is round. The Pontiac has a little dent in it. They do not play nice together. You have one or the other. So there's a lot of things like that that are gotchas if you're not aware of them and, and willing to look for them. So it's fun. It's a good hobby. You can have a unique vehicle. You'll learn a lot about working on, on vehicles. But the reality is you want to stick to the simplest mechanical workings of a vehicle you can get when if you're going to do this. You want, it, you want something when you open the hood and you look at it, there ain't much under there. You know, you got an alternator, a motor, a battery, um, you know, a, a fan, a radiator. I mean, the less you see, the better as a project car starting out, less to worry about. And again, if you get older vehicles, older enough, you can even have one that has a bunch of crap in there and you can yank it out and make it more like, let's call it like a, a Roadrunner stock race car. Um, without make me making it a race car. What I'm saying is just going back to 1965 with what's in it, and you can do that without worrying about emissions in some instances. Check all this before you make a decision or buy anything, and be very careful if you buy at car auctions. I can tell you some horror stories about things that get hidden, and you don't realize, and you only get so much opportunity to expect those vehicles. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Rich from Ohio. Uh, question concerning gardening. I have a septic system, and the laterals span out probably about 30 yards or so behind my house. Uh, they're about 18 inches below the surface. I was wondering if I'd be able to plant a gardening, a garden on top of the laterals, or if that would be uh, some type of health issue, risk, or something. So if you can let me know your thoughts on that, I'd appreciate it. Thanks. The answer is you're really not supposed to because there is some risk of uh, contamination, especially anything that would touch the ground. And, of course, since you're, you're generally, when you say your laterals, what you're really talking about is your leach field, you don't want to go planting trees there because they can screw it up. So anything with big, large root systems, a no-no as well. Um, if you were going to do anything, you could look at some you know, high bush uh, type situations, things that would keep anything that you would pick to consume far off the ground. Uh, so high bush blueberry, which is probably not going to do well because it's probably not acidic enough there. Uh, it's probably a more alkaline environment, but that's just an example of the type of structure I'm talking about, raspberries or something like that. Maybe you could get away with that and not have much risk because the plant root systems on the ground but if you're doing anything like a vegetable garden where you've got soil contact with the parts that you're eating it's a really high risk of contamination and generally even what i'm saying is kind of a fallback is not recommended either but what you could do is plant yourself a great big beautiful flower and uh, uh predator habitat there that would be very low maintenance and then make your garden just a little off from there. Now you're going to have to provide some sort of irrigation or use hugel culture or something like that for your garden, but you're going to reduce that you know potential for things like getting your food uh, in, in contaminated with something like E. coli. So you never plant a vegetable garden or grow anything that would ever be consumed that will touch the ground over a leach field of a septic system or even when you're using gray water. People use gray water for irrigation, oh, that's fine, but what you want to do with your gray water irrigation is use it for things like tall bushes and trees so that um, you know there's no danger of that, any kind of contamination getting through those roots and out into the fruit. But anything that comes in contact with the ground with gray water runs the risk of some contamination as well. Not as much as a septic system, but to a degree. So there's your answer with that. A little more information. That's an easy one. Let's go ahead and take another. 
Hey, Jack, this is Adam from Boston. I've noticed folks have been talking about the uh, market over the past couple of days as um, maybe a double-dip recession or perhaps acknowledging that we never left a recession, um, which is kind of a change. And uh, I'm wondering, are you thinking we should start to more closely look at moving out of equities in our investments and into something safer right now? Um, I wasn't expect I wasn't expecting folks to start acknowledging the fact that the recession never really left um, so soon, or that or basically admitting that the situation was worse than what folks were being led to believe. Anyway, um, thanks for taking my call. Bye. All I can say is I don't have a clear indicator at this moment the way I did in 08 where I'm like, you got to bail, you got to bail now. I'm, I'm not there. Uh, personally, where I have money leveraged in the market, I am no longer in any, and I repeat, any whatsoever type of fund, mutual funds a at all. Um, I have a little bit in some ETFs, but those are you know commodity-linked, and uh, I'm not a financial advisor, so I have to do things generally, not specifically, because somebody is going to take my general advice specific and go do something and say, Jack said to do it. But to give you an example, and these, I'm going to say it real, 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 real blunt, these are not buy recommendations. They're just examples of what I personally am holding now. I am holding stocks that I see to be highly recession slash depression resistant that pay dividends, uh, that have strong track records of performing through down periods. And this is only a portion of my investments. It's not like everything's sitting there. But we're looking at things and, and holding things right now like Procter & Gamble, uh, like Pfizer. Uh, these are these are companies that have traditionally held up well. Um, I, I do not hold any, but I wouldn't fault anybody for holding Walmart right now. Um, I, I wouldn't really fault anybody for going into the home improvement stocks like Lowe's or Home Depot right now, um, though I'm not there. I'm holding some real estate investment trusts. Um, those are a bit riskier, but they pay high dividends in the neighborhood. I have one paying 12%, and uh, that's called Chimnea, and I have another one paying about 18%. Um, but I have those collared with very, very strict stop losses. If the stock price plummets more than 15%, a sell is automatically triggered, and as the stock goes up, I move the stop loss up with it. So those are under very close scrutiny due to the level of risk that they incur. Um, so those are the types of things I'm doing, and I haven't bailed yet. If I feel the need to bail, I would bail quickly and go into cash and say that's just the way to go. But I think if you look at some of the high dividend, not really high dividend, but consistent dividend producers, not not the riskier stuff that I talked about earlier, but uh, companies like Procter and Gamble, Johnson and Jan Johnson, Pfizer, these are dividend superstars, and they've they've done well. They paid good dividends right through the uh, financial crash. Their prices did retract when the market went down. It drug just about everything down with it. I'd say the most stable stock I th saw through the recession, Walmart. Uh, you can hate them all you want if you don't like them, but. A stability. The problem with Walmart doesn't go anywhere, but it pays dividends. It pays them consistently, and when people are hurting, they buy the cheapest stuff they can get. So when I see the next financial crash, I see it coming in multiple stages, and the first stage is similar to the last one, um, and then it gets worse and it spirals from there. Um, so 
you got to make your own choice. If you feel at all like it's it's now for yourself, start moving to a stronger cash position. Realize you don't have to move to 100% cash. You can leave some of your things you feel safer at where they are. You can move a portion of cash. You can go 25%. You can go 30 You can go 40 You can go half. It's up to you. You don't have to do it all to put some away safely. I also want everybody out there with your investments to think real hard about the concept of a stop loss. Uh, there's the typical financial liar, oh, I mean advisor, objection against the stop loss, and that is, well, you put your stop loss in on Coca-Cola's junk, and then while you're on vacation and not paying attention, somebody finds a thumb in the Coca-Cola can, and it goes down to 13 cents, and your stop loss triggers it. Shut up. Really? Yeah, I'm a lot more likely to lose my ass in a market crash you tell me to ride through than that little scenario playing itself out, especially if I have myself well diversified into multiple investments and have separate stop losses on all of them. Uh, we're not going to do that with a mutual fund. Uh, you can, though. I mean, just consider that. You guys in your 401ks, you're not going to be able to set that stop loss off. You're going to have to pay much closer attention. But no, I'm not screaming bail right now, but I would damn sure understand anybody that did. If you are 100% invested in stocks right now, you are a damn fool. You're taking far too much risk. Of course, I feel like that all the time. Uh, but right now, I really think you're, you're, you're taking too much risk. I agree with Mike Gazer. There's a lot of ways to get your legs broke right now, um, and there's a lot of ways to win right now. That's the other side of it. Uh, just be smart and pay attention, and if you feel you need to plug, pull the plug, you pull the plug. Here's my concern. This is what I'm really watching. I'm not watching the talking heads going, Yeah, we never left a recession. Unemployment numbers are high. Like, yeah, we all knew that, dumbass. I mean, you're not telling me anything I don't know. I'm worried about this, the thing that gets dropped on people where people go, Crap. I don't know. That was about to happen. That's when panic happens. That's when the sell orders pour in. And when that happens, the market drives down. And that's when your mutual fund manager, who supposedly picks the best companies and even sends people to work there to find bullshit, he has to sit there and take it in the face because if he's in a small cap, a mid cap, growth and in income, he has a classification of stocks he can hold, and he has to sit there and hold them. He can't move to cash, and you take it in the face. That's why you have to do it for yourself. And all of those things revolve around when something new gets dropped on people, something people just had no idea was coming because they were stupid and had their head in the ground. The mortgage uh, meltdown, the financial crisis that, that occurred around it is what did it last time. What I see doing it this time is municipal defaults. And my big concern is we now have our first city that's really playing this model out, Pontiac, Michigan. we got to pay attention to that. If you start seeing them pop up, And you start when you see a state getting ready to get there to admit it, go before the crowd. The slaughter is about to occur. Get out of the way. That's what I'm watching. If I change my indicator, I'll tell you all this crap with Greece. I'm, it'll make the market go up 100 points today, down 100 points tomorrow, whatever. I'm not really worried about Greece. They'll tell you how important Greece is. Greece is only important because. If certain things happen in Greece, they may start to happen in other European nations. 
if things didn't go bad enough in Greece, and Greece says, screw off, we're not letting you do this to us, it may mean the death of the euro. Those are reasons to be concerned. The Greek economy, I heard the idiot on Fox News going, well, the Greek economy is highly tied to the United States economy. A lot of things that go on over there really affect things that go on over here, and we just don't think about it. Except for one little thing, she couldn't give us one freaking example, because she has no idea what she's saying. A lot of things that go on over there have a lot of things that go on over here because people react. The markets are move, moved by two things, fundamentals and emotion. Realize you have to stick to the fundamentals and stay ahead of the emotion. That's the best I can do for you on this right now. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Ben from San Jose. I have a quick question uh, for you regarding business and taxes. Um, I currently have a full-time job. I work about 40 hours a week. And on the side, I have a website it generates me about uh, five grand a year or so um, in advertising revenue. Um, over the past couple of years, though, I've uh, received um, taxes from, or I've I've had to pay taxes to the IRS to the tune of about fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars a year. Um, this is the only debt I have that I have to usually pay off throughout the year. Um, I've tried doing taxes myself. I've tried having people help me. Um, to do my taxes, and I just, I've also, I had, uh, people that are professional taxes, um, help me with it, and they just weren't aggressive enough with deductions and stuff like that, and they didn't use any deductions at all. Um, I'm basically wondering how you organize your business tax-wise, um, that, uh, maximizes your profits and li really limits your taxes as much as possible, because if I can edit my business plan, uh, in a way to, structure this better, I would really appreciate it. Right now, I'm just a sole proprietorship. Um, I don't have an LLC or anything like that, so maybe that's why I'm going wrong, too. Uh, anyway, uh, any, any hope you can get would be really appreciated. Uh, thanks, Jack. And uh, the website, in case you wanted to share it, was www.bestbeginnermotorcycles.com. Uh, uh, but if not, you can cut this out. All right. Thanks very much. Bye. Well, first, I'm going to tell you that you are paying about Ah, like you're going to pay up 25% there, so it's not that out of whack because one of the things you're paying that you may not be taking into account is you're paying your own Social Security. And that means you're paying your own Social Security match, and you're seeing, you know, maybe for the first time, um, what that really means. So, you know, you're adding the Social Security. Now, you get a little bit of a deduction back because you don't pay income tax on the part you pay the Social Security on, then you pay income tax on the balance. So it's not as bad as it sounds. But let me, let me just make something clear. It's not your accountant's job to be aggressive with your deductions. It's your job to be aggressive, and it's their job to tell you what you can and can't deduct unless you go to a really polished firm who's going to look at it from a tax strategy point and with four or five six thousand dollars worth of income you, you you can't afford it and they can't afford to mess with you i mean that's 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 a fundamental reality this is a small side amount of income now let me tell you the thing about this though if this site is like a blog or something like that and you write on it you are a writer and that's what you want to call you do you want to you know, clear this with a CPA, please. But this is my my way of doing this. You're a writer, you're a journalist, you're anything like that. That pretty much makes anything you use, buy, or purchase and write about on that blog a deduction. 
And you can create lots and lots and lots of deductions. And if you're using a decent CPA, and I mean even someone like, you know, Jackson Hewitt or H&R Block or anything like that, when they're putting in deductions, they should be able to run a check and it should say that deductions in this category are a little bit high based on the income and may trigger an automatic audit. That's not a 100% system, but there's software that kind of sort of does that. And sometimes that doesn't mean you take the deduction away. It means if it's a legitimate deduction, you simply take some of them and call them something else and move them to another category. Uh, it should be reasonably possible for you to get enough deductions, if you're creative, to pretty much make all of that self-employment income income go away at that level. Um, the other side of that, though, is you don't really have a problem. If you would like to pay no taxes on it, let's say you're paying $1,500 on five grand, and you have $3,500 less, and you don't want to pay any tax on your $3,500, uh, I will have a five-minute phone conversation with you, and I will charge you $3,500 for it. You can send it to me, and I will pay the taxes for you. So I'm not, I'm not making light of your situation. I'm just making a point that when we have new income, and it's a different type of income than we've ever had before, and we have to actually pay the taxes that have traditionally been paid not just by us, but by us and our employer. And we have to pay the taxes out kind of all at once instead of never. We actually really focus on the gross, and we didn't before. We just focused on the net. It, it changes perception. So the perception you have is a little bit skewed, but I do think you could reduce it. The easiest thing you can do is make sure that anything that's a potential deduction, you save the receipt, write down why you think it's a deduction on it, and then get a really expensive, complicated filing system. It's called 12 Manila Envelopes. One says January, the last one says December, and I'll let you figure out what you put on the rest of them. Each month, you make sure that every time you have a receipt that you think it qualifies as a deduction, you've written on it or stabled it to a piece of paper if it's not convenient to write on it, why you think it qualifies for a deduction. And your CPA's job, your accountant's job, is not to find the deductions in that type of situation. It is to vet the deductions for you and say, this could be a problem, this won't be a problem, what have you. I still say be careful about how much you put in any one category of deduction, because it can trigger audits. So a lot of times you might have hosting and domains, if you had a lot of websites, for instance. A lot of people would just put that as website services. If that number looks high relative to the income, break it into hosting and domain services instead of hosting and domain services in what? Just a, a little thing. Because here's the thing, even when you're right, you don't want an audit. You don't want to deal with it. You don't want to deal with the time. You don't want to have everything you've done be picked over. So it makes sense to do everything legitimately, have all your I's dotted, all your T's crossed, but also you know, put things in a format that makes you less likely to set off a red flag in the first place. Use a good CPA, though. If you met some dude that's an accountant through your lead group and he's kind of a good old boy, and it, no, that's that's not what you do with your professional finances, especially when you move into the world of business ownership. Uh, I would look for um, you're, you're probably the best you're going to do is like a, a Jackson Hewitt, H uh, and R Block, or something like that. Until you push your income level up to at least as a part time income, maybe fifteen twenty thousand. Uh, and at that point, you, you want to have a conversation with both a good CPA and an attorney and discuss the possibility of incorporating or forming an LLC. You want to look at all the things based on your state, what you're doing there. But with five grand in income, you just don't qualify for the time of somebody who's going to give you a strategic evaluation. You're going to have to do it for yourself and get the person you do have to vet the deduction. Let's take another one. 
Hey, Jack. Carson from Canada here. I have a comment about education and work, and it's actually about a company, a local company here. That's actually, I know the CEO personally, and I think they're doing it right. Because what he says, if you is, if you work for the company, you continue learning. The man believes in education, and the company pays for you to take your courses. Even he says he's. I mean, he's the CEO of the company, and he says, I'm no exception to the rule. I'm still taking courses, and the company pays for it. There's one lady that was working in the office, and she knew she wasn't going to be working there very long, and she tried talking to him and saying, look, I'm not going to be working here long. Um, I, I feel bad about taking this course, and you guys paying for it. And he says, it's part of the job. You work here. You take the course. They paid for her office administrator course, even though they they knew she was only going to be there for a few months. So that's great because it's not you have to have this degree to work here. It's you work here, you're going to keep learning. We're going to pay for you to keep learning so that you can do what you want in the company and do what you think you'd be best at in the company. And I just, I've been here, I, you've talked a lot about education lately, and I am like... 200% behind you on that. The education system is ridiculous, but I just think that's one company that's got it right, and I thought you'd like to hear about that. Hope you have a great day. Take care. Bye. Well, that'd be a great place to work, wouldn't it? Um, it brings up an interesting thought. I'm not going to say too much. you got another call on this education thing coming in a bit, and if some of you guys are, you know, like I've heard enough on this, I'm just going to tell you, the stuff keeps coming in on it because people are concerned about it, so I'm going to talk about it, but um, one of my biggest problems with the educational system of today and the university system today and what I call the college scam is when we use the truth to sell a lie. And this makes me think of a good illustration of that. There's a saying that a great education is priceless. I agree. That doesn't mean that a great education comes from uh, your local university, especially in regard to how you're going to live your life and what you're going to do professionally. I wonder, and I don't think this is a good idea, this is a hypothetical mental experiment uh, theory thing. So you guys that have this, these vaulted degrees that, 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 that believe that everybody should try to get one too because you've made the investment and you have to justify it, let's live in your world of theory for a moment. If we passed a law that said the only way you could get a college degree anymore, the only way you could get an education anymore after public school would be for it to be paid for by employers. You had to go out of high school, find an entry-level job, and your employer had to pay for your education. It will never happen. I don't want it to happen. I'm not advocating it. Don't be stupid in your comments with this one. Please, folks, we're in the world of theory. But this is what I want to point out. Do you know how many engineers would be taking courses in art history? None. Do you know how many, um, let's say, biologists would be taking 16th century French poetry? None. Do you know how many people would be getting four college credit hours for a uh, the p physical education uh, by taking bowling? None. If employers had to buy, directly pick and buy a la carte, the education for their employees, all the fluff and crap and nonsense in a college degree would just vanish overnight. 
And I'll leave it at that. But I think it's a great employer you're talking about there, Carson. And uh, that sounds like a great place to work. And I'd like to see more people do that and be willing to invest in their employees. And I think when you have the company that's paying the bill, uh, actually looking at what the person's learning, we're going to get a more tailored education. I do believe in education's priceless, but I'll save the rest of my comments on this for a later call. Let's go ahead and take another call right now. Hey, Jack, this is John in Arizona. I just uh, wanted to chime in a little bit about your comments of gardening and our veterans. My brother is a veteran of, oh, several conflicts. He got home from the first conflict and uh, got out of the military, didn't have anything to do. He started working at a Circle K because there wasn't any jobs and hooked up with one of his army buddies who introduced him to aquaponics, started producing some tremendous tomato plants. And uh, it gave a whole lot of purpose to him, not just because it was something to do, but he was producing some of his own food, which helped him out with the survival, all of his uh, financial situation. So... I, I agree 100%, and I wanted to say thank you to all of our veterans, and thank you, Jack, for an excellent show. Well, absolutely, thanks to all our veterans. And, of course, it won't be a show Monday because we're celebrating the birth of our nation, and our nation was born on the back of riflemen and soldiers. Please think about that over the weekend while we're having fun on a holiday weekend. Um, I'll tell you, this is another one of these things, like the college thing, that I know maybe doesn't seem like it applies to everybody, but boy, am I getting a lot of feedback on it. I'm hearing from veterans that say, you know, I came home, and I've even heard from a couple that listened to me while they were overseas and came home and started a garden right away and put their hands in the soil and said, you know, it does it does change things. It does center you. It does pull you away from things you don't want to remember. And eventually it allows you to remember them in a way that, that makes it possible to go on with your life. And I do think it's about a sense of purpose in addition to just the natural healing that I believe we get when we work with the planet. And I, I believe that 100%. Um, I, I hope that more and more people can kind of see this. And I know there's some organizations out there that are specifically matching up veterans with the opportunity to farm or to run aquaponics or things like that. And I'm going to work hard this next month to get some of the people behind those organizations on the show. Uh, and I'd love to get, if there's a veteran out there that's kind of really gone into it full bore and it's really working for you, I'd love to have you on and to talk about what you're doing, not just how it helps, but what you're doing too. I mean, anybody wants to come on and talk about their farm and or their aquaponic system, whatever, you're always welcome. But I'd love to bring somebody on that that's really doing it and, and, and talk about how it works. Because I think that what we'll find is that being a veteran isn't the only way to get really messed up mentally and emotionally. And I think that, and I've been saying this for three years now, If we could get most Americans gardening, we would put the psychotropic drug manufacturers, the psychologists and uh, the psychiatrists and, and all the counselors and self-help gurus, damn near all of them out of business because people wouldn't need them. I think there's so much more to gardening than just feeding yourself. I, I think it's all about feeding yourself, but I think it feeds us more than the yield that we get from direct harvest. I think it also feeds us emotionally and spiritually, and I think in a way 
that human beings have become disconnected from. There's a lot of spiritual enrichment we can get through religion and through uh, our churches or synagogues or temples or whatever faith you have and however that plays out for you. But there's a certain thing that no matter how much you're getting from that, that you are a human being. You have two feet and two hands, and you were designed, as Cody Lundin would tell you, to walk on the earth with your feet touching the ground, not to have it separated by leather or rubber. And there's a certain contact required, and it's not mystical, it's simply physical. And there's a physical thing that happens when, and a, a psychic thing, not a psychic, that's not the word I'm looking for, a, psycho, a psychological thing that occurs as humans when we're doing what we're meant to do. And working with the earth is part of that. It's, it's again, it's not religious, but it is spiritual. And the only way to really understand it is to experience it. And um, I hope it does help heal vets. And I hope things that people that have been through other things that have been traumatic for them, I hope it provides some healing for them. And I hope it holds families together. I don't think it's a coincidence. Um, there's a lot of reasons for a high divorce rate today. But I don't think it's a coincidence that at least one thing that we can say is that back when there were a lot less divorces, there were a lot more gardens. And it's not the magic bullet, and it won't guarantee that a family's going to stay together. But I do believe that a family that gardens together has a stronger bond. All right, thanks for that call. And if you have a story as a vet uh, about what gardening has done upon your return, again, I would love to hear from you. Thank you. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Charlie from Northwest Washington, my bookie on PSP Forum. I don't really have a question, but rather a favor to ask you. Would you do me a favor and meet up with Paul Wheaton and Seth Holzer this, around this time next year in Montana for their big permaculture extravaganza? Uh, everything I know about permaculture I learned from you. Well, I've done a little exploration after that, but... You're the one that got the fire lit under my ass about it, and I just think that if you went to that thing, you'd really know a lot more. I can't go. You can. With all the notice I'm giving you, you can then uh, line up about 21 guest speakers or hosts and uh, think of all the wonderful knowledge you can impart back to us. Thanks so much, much Jack. Bye-bye. I think the first thing I need to do is get a hold of Paul Wheaton and kick him in the ass for not telling me that this was going on. But uh, I'll definitely talk to Paul. Now he's a good friend. I'll talk to him and, and ask him why I didn't find out. And uh, I'd love to go. And uh, what, what can I say? Paul Wheaton, Seth Holzer, a bunch of permaculture people, Montana, all in one place at the same time. That, that sounds like a good place for me to be. So I will see if I can make that happen. And, folks, let's check into this. And uh, if you can get yourself to Montana for that, I'd love to see you there. I'm going to try to do more public appearances. Again, I, I mentioned the, uh, the Self-Reliance Expo that I'll be doing in Denver in September. Uh, and this sounds like another great one to be involved with. Uh, but with that, I mean, there's not much to add to that. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, just listen to your podcast topic was, do you need a college degree? I can tell you that I went to undergrad for four years and graduate program for about four years part-time to get my MBA, and both degrees um, pretty much are worthless. Um, I can tell you that in the industry I am in, software, internet, you need the stamp of the college degree to get in. You need the stamp of the MBA to get, to get a leg up, um, but at the end of the day, I only learned 1% of what I know um, about what I do from school. All of it, the majority, way overwhelming majority, was from actually doing the work. Um, so, anyway, 
that's kind of my take on it. Um, we unfortunately live in a pathetic place where you got to get these stamps to move ahead. And um, I don't know how that's going to change. Up here in the Northeast, um, the stamps are what get you in. And honestly, I went to a cheap graduate school. They didn't care where it was. They just wanted the stamp of MBA. Anyway, so that's me and my story. Take it easy. Told you there's another call on it, folks, and I'm just taking them in the order that they're coming in. Um, I want to say a little bit about this whole required thing. Um, it's true in a lot of your larger companies, but in your smaller companies, it's not anywhere near as true because a guy that's trying to put together a company and make it fly, and that's often where great opportunities lie, gives a hell of a lot less of a crap about where you went and cares a hell of a lot more about what you can do. And often, even in these places where it's required, you got to have it. I mean, you just got to have it. Not if you've been doing the job for three, four, or five years. And uh, if you've been doing the job somewhere else, all of a sudden people figure out ways to work with you and get around it. So it's not all the time. But I will admit, there are certain careers and certain professions that even, like this guy saying, where you don't really need it, um, you need it because you can't get in. So in those professions, I would say if that's really what you want to do, go to school and, and try to take some control over the classes you take and, and do the best you can at getting the best education you can out of it. But why is it that way? Because they use your own money against you just like the government. Universities have spent millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars marketing the concept that a degree means value. Not just in marketing it to you so that you'll go get the degree, but into marketing it to employers. And because it's been successfully done now for so many generations, we're really on our third generation of this, maybe fourth, of this full belief that the degree is the end-all, be-all. Uh, a lot of people in the positions of uh, power to make these decisions, of course, themselves have degrees. And they paid for their degree, and a lot of them are still paying for it. And a lot of them are 25 years into it. And it kills them. It kills them when they look at a young guy like I was at 23 or 24 that's kicking ass and taking names in business and is doing it at an age where they weren't even out of school yet, will never have a student debt, and it pisses them off. And they don't like it. On top of this... People are figuring this out. It is coming to light. The fact that you know, some people are tired of the subject on the show, but so many people have written in about it, commented about it, talked about it, sent me examples, made phone calls like this guy here. It tells you that this is coming to a head. People are figuring this out, and there's pushback. So what will the system do? Will it adapt to better serve the student and the employer by coming up with new innovative degree programs? Only kicking and screaming. Before then, it will spend all its money, all its lobbying, all its effort to defend the old world model. That is, the degree means everything and the university knows all. And the teachers at the university are special people that know more than everybody else. In fact, they're the people that should be running the world. And if we just ran the world intellectually, it would be such a better place if all you gun-grabbing, freako, religious guys out there that grab onto your guns and your, and your Bibles would let go and let intellectuals rule, we would be better off. That's what you're going to see there, that pushback. But I think the Internet's going to change this. I think the portability of information is going to change this. And I actually see eventually a new model where educators are paid by their students based on the value their student feels the educator provides. I think that's where we're going to go. It almost would be like a tithe, right? 
you know, but it's like a voluntary tithe of value so that if I walked up to you on the street and said, whoa, dude, don't walk across the road. There's a guy over there with a gun. And you looked over and there's a guy over there with a gun robbing somebody right now. You might turn to me and say, wow, man, I owe you something. And you'd give me something, whether it was a handshake or a $5 bill or a $50 bill or whatever. I don't think you should. I don't think that's a realistic scenario. I'm trying to paint a metaphoric picture for you here. But I think that You know, if I'm going to go to school and I'm going to listen to a guy run his mouth for six months about business and nothing he tells me actually helps me get ahead in business, he doesn't deserve my money. Hell, he didn't deserve my time. Why was I held prisoner in his class? That said, if I go sit down and listen to a man talk for two hours and he tells me three things that I can apply now, and they put more money in my pocket tomorrow and for the rest of my business career, well, I might want to pay him pretty damn good. And I think that we're going to see that model somehow, somehow uh, take place in the education system. It may be more based on the total number of students that vote in a certain way and uh, more like a, a pooling system. We might start seeing uh, an educational system where teachers are paid more like Football players is the minimum salary, but the star players make more money. There's a, and, and the thing is, well, you never do that in the education system today. No, but we can build it. And there's the unlimited opportunities. Unlimited opportunities. And it's the entrepreneur that will change it, both by building new models of education and by building new companies that accept the new models of education. Because I'm going to tell you flat out right now, I don't care if an engineer that I hire to build an airplane wing had French poetry. I really don't. But I do care that he knows how to build an airplane ring so it doesn't come off the dadgone plane. And that's just an easy one to explain. I feel the same way about any profession out there. The only person that I care, do you know French poetry from the 16th century, is a person that's teaching it because somebody wants to learn for the hell of it because I don't see any practical application for it at all. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack Ray calling from southeastern Kentucky, I believe, Zone 5B. I was wondering if uh, you knew uh, some nitrogen-fixing trees that would work with my area, uh, more specifically whether the eastern redbud, redbud would do that for me. Uh, it grows very well in the area, and uh, I noticed it has a, a bean pod. I didn't know if that was a, a telltale sign or not, but thanks, Jack, for all you do at the show, and... Uh, Can't wait to hear from you. Now, there are two trees in your area, real, real uh, common in your area, that people look at and go, that looks like a legume, that should fix nitrogen, and neither one of them do. And one is Eastern Redbud, and the other one is Kentucky Coffee Tree. And neither one of those will produce nitrogen for you. Probably the best bet you're going to have and something that will do well for you there is going to be black locust, and you get a good uh, solid wooden wood for making tool handles or fence posts, and you get nitrogen fixation. Um, and there's a lot of other things that you could do. You could grow, um, uh, what, what am I looking for? Gummies uh, are a, you know, you know, kind of a small shrub with a good little fruit, and they produce uh, or fix nitrogen. Uh, sea berry should do very well for you up there, and that's more of a bush shrub type thing, and it'll produce nitrogen for you. 
unfortunately, like the three of the best trees are Lucena, Moringa, and Acacia, and, and none of them will do well outside of the tropics. And you can do Lucena and Moringa uh, fairly decently because they grow fast in like South Texas and all. You lose them every year, but they'll grow, and, and you get a yield of nitrogen out of them and a yield of uh, small wood uh, as well. But they don't really work up your way or even up my way. So. Uh, locust being one of the best. And then you can, I mean, Siberian pea shrub, uh, false indigo is a small little shrub that produces uh, a nitrogen. So there's a lot of stuff out there that does it. Here's the key, though, um, especially with trees. It's one thing for the tree to fix nitrogen, but if you want it to become bioavailable to other things, it can't just sit there. Uh, the big method that permaculturists use to get that nitrogen into the soil is chop and drop, chop, chop and drop mulching. So you get your locust tree, it grows up to about six, seven, eight foot tall. You chop it down to about four feet tall, you cut the pieces up, you throw them on the ground, you let them mulch. That builds soil fertility one way. But if you could see underground and look at the tree from the side and look at it three-dimensionally, so you're seeing from the bottom of the root system up to the top of the tree, uh, you'd see a root system that looks remarkably like the tree's canopy in size. They're almost equal to each other. And when you cut the top of the tree off, then there's only so much need for a root system, and the roots will actually self-prune. And they'll drop off. And all the little nitrogen nodules will drop off into the soil. As the tree goes back, the root system will expand. And that's not the big major tap roots and things like these. These are little hairy, fine hairy roots all over that almost match the canopy exactly. Not exactly, but close. And every time that tree is cut back and grows again, it has to prune the root system. It has to drop the nitrogen into the soil. If you just let it keep growing, it gets bigger and stronger, and the tree uses most of the nitrogen for itself. So it's beyond just knowing what species to use. And with your shrubs and your bushes and things like that, this is all the same. When you see a farmer plant a cover crop for nitrogen, whether it's vetch or a winter pea or something like that, they never let the plant go to full maturity. They always chop it down or turn it into the soil before it's fully mature so that it doesn't utilize all of the nitrogen that it produces and it leaves a nitrogen yield behind. If the plant is allowed to go to maturity, it will leave some nitrogen behind, but of course it will also consume it. Think about it this way. It's like a potato. If you leave it in the ground long enough, the potato will ruin itself. Right? There's something there sort of like a potato. There's some potato material, but it won't be that nice, beautiful spud that you want to put some butter on and grill on the grill. That's kind of what you're going to do. Your nitrogen nozzles are going to get used up by the host plant. Or if it's a long-living host plant, like a tree that lives 50 years or more, it'll keep producing the hell out of nitrogen. It'll also keep pulling it up. And again, it's not that none of the nitrogen gets in the soil, but if you want to get a real good yield out of trees and shrubs and things like that, you're going to have to practice that chop and drop mulching. Uh, and I would say locusts from tree, from a pure tree standpoint, locusts would be one of the best things you could look at. Honey locusts, black locusts, things like that. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. It's Dave from northern Michigan. I've got a saving tip for you. Um, I have horses, and if you go into the store and buy that fly spray, because the flies can be relentless on your critters, and I believe in taking good care of your animals. Um, but that spray is pretty expensive. But if you take a half-and-half half mixture of white vinegar with pine salt, plain old pine salt, buy the big bulk containers at Sam's Club, and the stuff is cheap as chips, Mix a half and half mixture and spray it on your horses. Do it just with a little hand 
hand sprayer on them. Um, but the horses don't like the smell, so you might want to have their head upwind, and when you're spraying it, the wind is blowing it downwind. Um, but that's a cheap way of giving your critter some uh, some comfort there. So I pass that one on to you, Jack. Thanks a lot for what you do. Bye. Well, that's cool. It could probably use uh, in other ways to help control flies. Let me throw another fly control um, helper into the mix there. I, I thought this would be something that uh, folks might find interesting. And um, I've learned this in a book that I put out. Uh, you can get read it for free online called Micro Livestock uh, a while ago. But a Muscovy duck is, and Muscovy duck is the you know little ducks you see in uh, city parks and all with the little red bubbly things on their head, and some of them are white, and some of them are all pretty different colors. They're the native uh, of north and uh, actually Central America, South America, and uh, the only domestic duck that doesn't descend from the mallard. Apparently, they are fly-consuming machines. Let me read a page to you uh, from that book on Muscovy ducks and fly control. The Muscovy is a voracious omnivore that is particularly fond of insects. For years, Canadian farmers have sworn that a few Muscovies took care of all fly problems on their farms. In 1989, Ontario biologist Gordon Sir Jenner and Barry something else uh, decided to put this to the test. Starting in the laboratory trials, the entomologists first put a hungry five-week-old Muscovy into a screened cage with 400 living houseflies. Within an hour, it had eaten 326. Later, they placed four Muscovies in separate cages containing 100 flies each. Within 30 minutes, over 90% of the insects were gone. It took flypaper, fly traps, and bait cards anywhere from 15 to 86 hours to suppress the population that much. What they did in 30 minutes, it took uh, fly traps 86 hours to do. Moving to field tests, the researchers placed pairs of two-year-old muscovies on several Ontario farms. Videotape showed the birds snapping at houseflies and biting flies about every 30 seconds. And these guys are good. Listen to this part. Uh, and being successful on 70% of their attempts. With that efficiency, they achieved 80 to 90% fly, uh, fly control in enclosures such as calf rooms or piggeries. The birds were given only water and had to scavenge for all their own food. Females seemed to eat about half or eat about 10% more flies than males, and individuals of any age between eight days and two years were equally effective. Uh, so there's another thing you can add to your fly control. So now you've got an organic, cheap, easy-to-make uh, fly spray. And you know that if you add Muscovy ducks to where your livestock are, you're going to get a lot better fly control. And Muscovies lay eggs, and out of those eggs come little Muscovy chicks. And when they're about, like, you know, four to five months old, those little fly destroyers can make really good roasters. Just saying, Muscovy is a damn good eating duck. Uh, something else you might want to check out. Let's go ahead and take one more call. We'll wrap up for this Friday. Jack, how's it going? i got a question for you. I'm active duty military, and being that we have to get transferred against our will about every four years or less, I was wondering if you could want to run a quick uh, how-to guide on maybe setting up some uh, short-term uh, container gardening setups. Uh Getting ready to transfer this summer, and uh, I'm heading to a uh, pretty good climate for gardening, and I'm going to have some land finally to uh, do that on, but I don't want to invest 
four years of effort and labor into a landlord's rental property, and I'd like to set up something maybe using fish totes or something like that to uh, maybe grow a garden and have a couple seasons worth of fresh produce while I'm there. I've uh, noticed that the local CSAs that I've been involved in before, even though I'm a wounded person or vet, to say so to speak, even though I'm not retired yet, uh, I end up doing most of the damn work, and they end up reaping most of the benefits once I leave. So if you can give us some guidance on that, buddy, it would help a lot. Keep up what you're doing, and uh, have a good day. That's a, you know, something that I think a lot of people deal with, some from the military and some for other reasons. They know they're going to get transferred a lot. Um, you're, you're going to be doing best by doing container gardening and, and with uh, the active, you know, the kind of hectic lifestyle that you might live, self-watering containers, uh, trying to design container systems that are able to fit inside of themselves. Uh, with your moving, you're probably not going to be taking your soil with you. The containers weigh very little empty and an awful lot full. Um, so you may want, not want to go with too large of containers, and I think that's the best short answer. Uh, I had Marjorie on from Backyard Food Production uh, this week. She'll be airing it, her interview will be airing next week, and uh, she said that people build barrel ponic systems that are in the military, a little aquaponic system based on barrels, and whenever they have to move, they just pick up their barrels and, and their their pumps and all, and they take those with them. Um, you're not going to do a very large system that way, but you can do a very productive system that way. And I guess right before you transfer, you're going to be eating an awful lot of fish to use up the fish, and you will have to go through, a, you know, a, um, a, a, a nitrate cycle to get the system balanced again when you get where you're going. But I think that's the key for people that are going to have to move is very efficient, high yield to low space situations. And there's no reason at all, that you can't do some basic gardening without putting a ton of money into it. I just did a show uh, this week on gardening methods. One would be bag gardening. So you move into a place, there's a fence. It's a beautiful fence. It has sunlight. It would make a great place to trellis beans and squash and other vegetables up onto it. You go to the store, you buy yourself 10 or 15 or 20 bags of, uh, of soil. You lay them along the fence, you cut them open, you plant into them, you trellis up onto your fence... Uh, the next year, you turn the bags over, pull the plastic out, throw it away, plant into the soil. Um, you didn't really do a whole lot of work or invest a whole lot of money. You can grow out of there for four years. And if you are buying the property and you're going to sell the property, you've increased its value. If you're renting it, whoever you're renting from, you haven't really done anything that's going to make that big of a deal out of it. Uh, that would be something that even a lot of base housing you could do. So, It's about efficiency, so vertical gardening, container gardening, aquaponics, uh, very small um, greenhouse environments, I think, would, would be very effective as well, growing some greens. Grow some, you know, focus on things that are easy, small, but have a big impact. Herbs, if you can grow, you know, a couple containers with five or six of the, you know, the big, the horsemen of the herbs family, you know, parsley, basil, uh, dill, oregano, thy oregano, thyme, and rosemary. If you produce those fresh, you can do so much for your cooking without actually growing vegetables and conventional things. So that's what I would do, and I would do that for anybody that's space-challenged or has to move often or frequently. Look at the Springhouse brand of greenhouses. Um, I had one. It worked really good until a big storm tore it apart. It kind of put a bad taste in my mouth for it, but... If we hadn't had a really big storm, I'd probably still have it. They're built by a company in Germany, and uh, they seem to be really actually very well built. Expecting something to stand through some major spring storms in North Texas, 
Um, you know, there's people's houses that didn't stand through the same storms that took out my greenhouse. So I was a little bit unfair with the way that I judged it. But, you know, a six by a eight or, um, you know, an eight by ten pop-up greenhouse can fold down. It can go anywhere you go. It's going to make your container gardening so much more successful. It reduces your watering requirements. It extends your season. Uh, the less space you use to garden, the more important it is to garden throughout all four seasons. Because you don't grow as much that can be stored for your winter season when people typically kind of scale way back on their gardening. So those are the best things that I can advise you with on that. On that note, coming up especially on the 4th of July, thank you for your service as a veteran. And uh, thank you for your continued service after being an injured veteran. Uh, that's special, and it, it probably means you really want to still be there. Most people that have an injury that's significant enough that they would even mention it if they want to can find a way to leave and go do something else. So thank you very much to your service. Thank you to everybody who has served um, for your service to our nation. Uh, and, and happy birthday, America. And... Uh, This 4th of July, stop and think about what it really means, the blessings that we really have here, and realize that a lot of the things that we talked about today when it comes to being self-sufficient, being independent, having your liberty, doing it for yourself, not looking to the government for your solutions, that's what this nation's really all about. And I know it's easy to look at the nation today and look at our people and I sometimes feel you want to place your face in your hands and weep for your nation. If you, you know, I think everybody feels like that. If you love this country, you have to feel like that at some time. But realize you are the solution. You are the answer. No one else is going to do it for you. And we have to do it first. And then others will follow. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay I guess when we Follow all the rules There's a better way To do this Let me show you A better way
revolution 